You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lesson 7, The First Principle of Christian Life, Section 7-8 to eight of Redemptor Hominus. In this lesson, we will learn about the first principle or starting point the deepest root, if you will, the fundamental point of orientation for John Paul II's thought and life that he explains in Redemptor Hominus. It is the secret to his life, the source of his strength and wisdom, the core truth of his being, and we shall always return to this. And he always returned to this point in prayer. And it's the point to which he urges all followers of Christ and members of the church. And not surprisingly, that point is Jesus Christ, the mystery of Christ. When he says, our spirit is set in one direction, the only direction for our intellect, will, and heart is towards Christ our Redeemer, towards Christ, Redeemer of man. So there is the title of the encyclical. There is the overarching theme of this work, Redemptor Hominus, and of his entire pontificate. How could it be any other? John Paul II is a Christian, a man of Christ, a Catholic priest who lives in the person of Christ, in persona Christi, as he fulfills his priestly duties. But I think we should be struck with the freshness and vigor with which he proposes this theme of contemplation on Christ the Redeemer. If we back up one paragraph, we see there is a reason for the freshness and vigor with which he proposes that he is following in the footsteps of Paul VI and that he is following the path upon which the church was set after Vatican Council II, as he looks forward to the end of the second millennium, expecting a new advent, a new presence of Christ in spirit in the church and in the world, the spirit of renewal. For Paul VI in his first encyclical on the church said that the church must deepen her awareness of her own mystery and the gift that comes from Christ. So John Paul asks, how can I continue Paul VI's idea of meditating on the mystery of Christ 13 years after the council and 22 years before the advent of the new millennium? And that's what leads him to make, he says, a fundamental and basic response is this. Our spirit is headed in one direction, looking to Jesus Christ with an open mind, will, and heart. And he repeats the words of the Lord, of Peter to our Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's a role given to the successor of St. Peter to enact that very profession of faith that continues to stir and strengthen his brothers in the Lord, as Jesus asked Peter to do, and all the followers of Peter. 
So if Pope Paul VI sought to deepen the Church's awareness of its very life, gifts, and mission, as described by the Council in Lumen Gentium, the document on the Church, now John Paul II says, through all the levels of this self-awareness, through all the fields of activities in which the Church expresses herself and finds herself and confirms herself, he said, we must constantly aim at him who is the head. And he follows this idea with a litany about the significance of Jesus Christ. Using passages of scripture, Jesus Christ is he through whom all things are made and through whom we exist. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. To have seen Jesus is to have seen the Father. Jesus who went away so that he might send the Holy Spirit of truth. And this litany culminates in the great statement by St. Paul in Colossians 2.3 that in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found. So yes, we look towards Jesus Christ for wisdom and understanding. We also see at the outset why there must be two encyclicals that follow this one, constituting the triptych on God the Holy Trinity. He begins with the encyclical on Christ, the Redeemer of man, but he says Christ reveals the Father and Christ sends the Spirit. And to quote the Vatican Council document on the Church, on the exalted being and mission of the Church, he says, it's by her relationship with Christ, the Church is a kind of sacrament or sign and means of intimate union with God and the unity of all mankind. The source of this is Christ the Redeemer. So the Church and his members, her members, must constantly thrive on this devotion to Jesus Christ and attention to Jesus Christ, listening and rereading his words to ponder the details of his life and character. That is what John Paul has done his whole life and he brings the fruit to us now. He also says the life of Christ appeals to non-believers as well as believers. His life speaks as a man in his humanity, his fidelity to truth, his all-embracing love. The suffering and abandonment on the cross have been an inspiration and source of instruction throughout the world, throughout all time. So the church's own life is built up in this meditation on Christ and this focus on Christ. The Church unceasingly celebrates the fountain of life and holiness in the Eucharist. So he concludes this section 7 saying the Church lives in this mystery, draws unwearyingly from it, and continually seeks ways of bringing this mystery of her Master to humanity to the peoples, the nations, the succeeding generations, and every individual human being. This is his starting point. 
It's the starting point of the church at all times, as he says, to stay with or to dwell in the sphere of the mystery of redemption. He says this is the principle of the life and mission of the church. So there we have the secret of John Paul II. It is union with Christ. It is that devotion of heart, mind, and will to Christ the Redeemer. Now this devotion is more than a sentimental turn or just a subjective preference. It arises from faith, yes, but faith, divine faith is a reception of truth, an assent to truth based upon the testimony of another who is credible. So this beginning point is a beginning in truth. The apostolic witness establishes the central claims of Christianity upon which the church is built. Peter is the rock upon which the church is built because of his witness and devotion to Christ. So it's around this that John Paul fashions his message for the modern age. The facts upon which we must begin are the incarnation and the passion of Jesus Christ. Man is redeemed because of the incarnation and the passion of Christ. I think we can derive some insight from Cardinal Newman, who has a very perceptive account of the cognitive basis for the church's approach to man in the world. He eschewed the private judgment of so many Christians to say that faith is universal. In the difficulties of Anglicans, Newman discussed and said the liturgy and trappings of Catholic faith and its dogma even protect a mystery, the mystery of Christ and our union with Christ. And he says, here's the quote, they not only defend a dogma, they represent an idea. They preach good tidings. They are the channels of grace. They are the outward shape of an inward reality or fact which no Catholic doubts, which is assumed as a first principle, which is not an inference of reason, but the object of a spiritual sense. And herein is the strength of the church. She professes to be built upon facts, not opinions, on objective truths, not on variable sentiments, on immemorial testimony, not on private judgment, on convictions and perceptions, not on conclusions. I think this describes very well the spirit of John Paul II as he begins Redemptor Hominus. This is the cognitive basis of what he has to teach. It emerges from a lived faith, but it's the reception of a divine truth. John Paul II must begin in faith for this message to the church and humanity. Of course, this is required by the office that he holds, but he also speaks from his own personal experience and reflection from his own faith journey, but he also speaks from a personal experience and reflection shaped by reason, by philosophy, 
by literature and poetry, by a deep awareness of historical events and trends. As in his own life and career, John Paul II's first encyclical, Redemptor Hominus, follows the way of faith and reason, as we shall see. But faith takes a priority in the opening of this statement of the theme, and for the ultimate resolution to what the significance of human life is. It's in Christ. Reason in its turn will be needed to highlight the crisis of our time, to provide an analysis of the human person that shows our fitness to seek for a Redeemer, to understand the importance of freedom. All of these are the result of reason in a philosophical analysis. As John Paul II said in Fides et Ratio, each without the other is impoverished and enfeebled. Deprived of what revelation offers, reason has taken sidetracks which expose it to the danger of losing sight of its final goal, which is wisdom. On its hand, deprived of reason, faith has stressed feeling and experience and can run the risk of no longer being a universal proposition. John Paul II gives us a universal proposition, the fact, this mystery of Christ, but he has a vigorous reason that expounds it, defends it, underlies it. So if we take the next step into section 8, Redemption is a new creation. He begins to explore the central fact and mystery of Christ with this quote. In him has been revealed in a new and more wonderful way the fundamental truth concerning creation, to which the book of Genesis gives witness that God saw it was good. In other words, Jesus Christ will highlight Indeed, he will redeem the good of the world. He came not to condemn the world, but to save it, to redeem it. Redemption is precisely that salvaging, restoring, elevating the good of nature in creation, which has been disfigured and broken by sin. As St. Paul said, subjected to futility. The reason is the good has its source in wisdom and love, a transcendent wisdom and love. This is a philosophical claim as well as a theological one. Philosophers aspire for wisdom and love. But wisdom recedes before our grasp and love often fails to achieve its promise. That is human experience. Human beings find themselves lacking in wisdom and love. We have to be honest and admit we've departed from the path of wisdom and love. This is what is known as sin. And as Joseph Pieper explains in his book on the concept of sin, the full theological meaning of sin, that it's an offense of, against God, is in continuity with and emerges out of human experience and philosophy and rational exploration of human nature. For example, we know how often we miss the mark in our actions. That's how the philosophers would speak. Or that we do not achieve the perfection of our nature. 
we suffer a tendency to act contrary to reason. This prepares us to understand that sin is ultimately a state of alienation from God. We may first discover sin as an alienation from our better self or from others, but we are led up to see the transcendent divine source of wisdom and love was broken. The man, Adam, broke the link with God. And because of sin, we've been subjected to futility and death, which we see in our world today. It's been part of human history. Even in light of the great progress that human beings have made, even in light of the great dominion over the world we have achieved through technology, the disproportion and urgency of our failures, you could say, loom even larger. That our power has not brought about a utopia or a redemption of mankind. That is the myth of progress, of secular progress. The crisis of our time he will describe in greater depth in sections 15 and 16. But he mentions here environmental disasters. Pollution caused by industry and technology, the self-destruction we've inflicted upon ourselves through scientific weapons, particularly atomic bombs, the lack of respect for the unborn. How is this possible in an age of space, space flight, he says? These great conquests show so much futility. St. Paul's words that the world is groaning in travail, waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, is still a most apt insight about the human condition. And here is where Christ proves himself a redeemer of man, because he reestablishes, or John Paul says, reforges the link between humanity and the divine source of wisdom and love. He lived and taught divine wisdom and love. And through the mysterious actions of his cross and resurrection, and through the sending of the Holy Spirit, he has restored humanity. He has restored each person to the source of wisdom and love. That is why redemption is a new creation. It shall be recreated through the love and wisdom of God, which is brought to us through the life and teaching of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit. So now is where he introduces his first among many meditations upon those passages in Gaudium et Spes to which we referred earlier, that Christ as man, reveals man to man himself. Gaudium et Spes 22 is in this section 8. Christ as true man has penetrated the depth of human consciousness. This is a quote from the Vatican Council. And by making contact with the inward mystery, the heart of man, he can lead each of us to see the way to live more truly as a human being in wisdom and love. So again, Gaudium et Spes would say, only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light.
Christ fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. So here we have that coming together of faith and reason. It is through faith that we approach Christ as true God and true man. But it's with reason, John Paul II explains, that we bring ourselves with our questions and our search for wisdom, with our search for living a more human life before Christ, and ask the questions that lead us to see if we will but look at Christ and listen to his words, a source of wisdom that, yes, takes us beyond reason, but is in clear continuity with our reasonable questions and our aspirations to what is higher in life, that Jesus Christ is a teacher of mankind and that he drew upon the most humble and simple metaphors and parables to teach the most profound teaching. It doesn't take some special Gnostic insights to approach Christ and begin to call him teacher. Now, yes, to, make, to take the next step and say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter did, or to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That is granted through the gift of faith. But much comes through human experience and human reason. But what we must do is look at Christ. I would say John Paul bids us to peer into the gospel, to look into it, to discover our Redeemer. And we thereby discover our true and better self as forgiven and redeemed by God. In an age of despair, with its ongoing self-belittlement of man, as Nietzsche says in his Genealogy of Morals, and the secret self-accusation of worthlessness that infects so many people. Christ restores the true image of man and dignifies human life. That is the teaching of John Paul II. That is why he urges us to look at Christ. Of course, it's not without its price. It's the sacrifice of Christ. And the renewal does not come about without a determined response and a continual cooperative effort on our part. But each human life bears this dignity and can be raised up. For we read also in Gaudium et Spes 22, the simple but moving passage that he, Christ, worked with human hands, thought with a human mind, loved with a human heart. He did all things well. And we can enter into his way and strive to live by his teachings. To listen to the Beatitudes and understand what the happy life is. This is what leads to the redemption of man. As taught by St. Paul, the significance of these facts about Jesus Christ the incarnate Son of God, is that he is the image of the invisible God.
Colossians 1.15. He is the perfect man who has restored in the children of Adam that likeness to God, which has been disfigured since the fall. So the council fathers say that human nature through Christ in his life has been raised to a dignity beyond compare. So that they say, Christ united himself with each man. Each person can respond to this great discovery that Christ has joined himself to humanity. And this provides the opportunity to become a child of God, to live a new life, to live by a new principle, a principle of wisdom and love. It requires that each person consider the teaching and sacrifice made by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, at a time when the crisis of our time, which he mentions in this section on just an initial sketch of the environmental crisis or the danger of scientific weapons. I think it would be useful to just supplement this with a speech that John Paul gave just three months after he released Redemptor Hominus. He visited his home country of Poland for his first visit. And as part of that visit, he went to Auschwitz, the death camp set up by the Nazis to express the other degradation of human dignity, not only of their victims, but the Nazis themselves degraded themselves through their great arrogance and loss of heart and vision. So you could say he took this opportunity to say more about this idea that the link between the human and divine source of wisdom and love has been broken. The alienation from God and others has become magnified even more in the 20th century because of the pace and intensity of the projects of man and the power of our technology. That was seen at Auschwitz in which we had the most scientific and in a way the most cultural nation on earth turning to the most barbarous ideology and capable of complicity in some of the most hideous deeds, certainly of the 20th century, if not of human history. So, in this picture of John Paul II at Auschwitz, you can see him standing first at the railroad tracks that lead in to the death camp which almost become a symbol of the end of the line of human life it can, if it continues on its course without taking stock of itself and seeking the redemption of Christ. The end of the line is a mastery of man over man, sweeping all human beings in as potential objects of control. John Paul II, in one of his later encyclicals, Gospel of Life, said that's what so worries him about the 
culture of death in the liberal societies is that the unborn have become just objects of manipulation to be thrown away and used at will, as the Nazis did with the populations they despised, starting with the Jews but including Polish people and other Eastern Europeans. And I might add, many Catholic priests were on the front line. So John Paul II says here, at Auschwitz, in the face of total utilitar totalitarian degradation, let me read you one of his quotes. He says, I've come to pray with all of you who have come here today and with the whole of Poland and the whole of Europe. Christ wishes that I, who have become the successor of Peter, should give witness before the world to what constitutes the greatness and misery of contemporary man, to what is his defeat and his victory. I have come and kneel on this Golgotha of the modern world. That was June 7th, 1979. Well, I think we all know what the defeat is, the massive defeat of humanity by the Nazis. What is the victory? The victory to which John Paul II witnesses is the life of St. Maximilian Mary Colby as a man who lived a life of service and gave his life for someone else. So in the very midst of this horror, a man stood up, a Franciscan priest, who stood up and offered his life in love. That is the victory of Christ. And interestingly, John Paul II refers to Maximilian Kolbe as the man who reforged the link. There's our connection with Redemptor Hominus. He reforged the link with wisdom and love through faith. It's a, a homily that should be read in its entirety, and I won't summarize much of it. But at the bottom, he said, it is the age-old conflict between good and evil in history. And we need Christ, who has reforged the link between the goodness and wisdom of God, which was broken by Adam, and now it's true of all human beings, that we lack the wisdom and love to act in a way that builds up and doesn't tear down. So yes, this idea of the crisis of our time that John Paul II will develop calls for the restoration of philosophy and political moderation, the development of progress under humane conditions, ethics over technology. We'll see some of these formulations that he will give. But first of all, we need the restoration of our humanity from the grace of God. We need the Redeemer of man then we can see victory rising out of defeat. So he says at Auschwitz, even here, love is greater than sin. Love is greater than weakness. Love is greater than the futility of creation. Love is stronger than death. That is a great refrain we'll see John Paul II explaining in our next section. He often repeats that throughout his pontificate. 
So as they look back to the life and deeds of St. Maximilian Mary Colby, for testimony to love, he says this, the victory through faith and love was won by him in this place, which was built for the negation of faith. A negation of faith in God and a negation of faith in man and tramples not only radically on love, but on all signs of human dignity and of humanity. End of quote. So that through the Redeemer of man, through Christ, we can restore faith in man and faith in God to appreciate human dignity and live a life of love and according to the divine wisdom. This is possible for all of us personally and communally. But we have to understand again who Christ is and how we can follow him and how we can participate in this restoration of our human nature and a participation in the divine nature. Christ makes possible. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.